if you have a normal human genetic makeup, that is you lose most of your intestinal lactase enzyme after you're weaned, so three, four, five, six years old, probably, then you have the potential for lactose intolerance. That's about three-fourths of the world's population. It's about a quarter of the U.S. population. It's essentially all folks who come from Asia, many who come from Africa, the Middle East, uh, Native Americans. Uh, Hispanics in the United States are about 50% what we would call lactose maldigesters or low lactase activity. It's the normal human and mammalian trait. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Excellent by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. AVVISA, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show. I am your host, Joe McFadden. Joining me today is Dr. Dennis Saviano. He is the Virginia Claypool Meredith Professor in the Department of Nutrition Science at Purdue University. Dr. Saviano is also the Director of the Clinical Research Center and Connections in Health, Indiana Department of Health Coalition Development Program. Today, we're talking about lactose intolerance. Professor Saviano has studied lactose digestion for four decades, quite a long time. His research group has studied factors which influence lactose digestion intolerance, including lactose load, gastric and intestinal transit, and fermented dairy foods, as well as lactic acid bacteria. Thank you for joining me, Dennis. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. You know, I want to set the stage for you, okay? And I'm gonna, this, is, this is what happened last night at my house, okay? And so it's past dinner time. I decide to go to the freezer. I open it up, and I grab my favorite ice cream, okay? I like the chocolate peanut butter cup. It's got to be the dark chocolate. It's got to have the thick ribbons of peanut butter in it, okay? And then I go to my other cupboard, and I get right where the bowls are. And I get all these choices of bowl sizes. And, of course, I go for the biggest bowl. I got a big-sized spoon. And instead of a single scoop, I usually get my ice cream in slabs, okay? So I'm cutting out a slab of ice cream right, from, the, from, the, from the container. I sit and I enjoy it. I'm having a great time. A few hours later, I feel some GI disturbance. Am I lactose intolerant, Dennis? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> um, you know, we, we, feel lack, we feel GI disturbance from a lot of things. Yeah. But lactose intolerance really depends on your genetic makeup, first and foremost. If you have a normal human genetic makeup, that is you lose most of your intestinal lactase enzyme after you're weaned, so three, four, five, six years old, probably, then you have the potential for lactose intolerance. That's about three-fourths of the world's population. It's about a quarter of the U.S. population. It's essentially all folks who come from Asia, many who come from Africa, the Middle East, uh, Native Americans, 
Hispanics in the United States are about 50% what we would call lactose maldigesters or low lactase activity. It's the normal human and mammalian trait. If you think about mammals, all mammals, they all lose most of their lactase activity after weaning. It's a normal thing. The, in the interesting thing about humans is about a quarter of them have seen in their, their, their genetic past a single change in their promoter region of the gene, the lactase gene, that has allowed them to keep high levels of enzyme activity. So Northern Europeans, Central Africans, some Middle Easterners uh, have been able to, and, and why is a really interesting question, you know, what advantage was there in evolution 10,000 years ago or whenever that caused this change to occur? And by the way, it's occurred in about eight or 10 different populations in eight or 10 different places. So it's a very floppy region of the gene. And the single nucleotide changes have changed the way the, the gene is downregulated. It essentially prevents it from being downregulated after weaning. So we maintain high levels of enzyme activity. The unusual humans are the ones that remain very lactose tolerant all their life. And, and that's because of that, that, that polymorphism in the gene? Correct. Correct. It's a genetic trait. Uh, what's interesting is that there are cultures, the Moroccan culture, for example, the Tunisian culture, and there are, there are lots of biblical references to dairying in places where people were lactose maldigesters or lactose intolerant. Today, China is building a huge dairy industry, yet the Chinese are almost to a person what we would call lactose intolerant or lactose maldigesters. I'm going to argue with you that the evidence, the scientific evidence suggests that you don't have to exclude dairy foods from your diet if you're a lactose maldigester. And in fact, doing so limits your access to calcium, phosphorus, high quality protein, riboflavin, uh, some other nutrients, but those are the key ones. When your goal is to help animals reach their full potential, health matters. Diamond V offers a fresh perspective on animal health perspective that supports gut health, strengthens immunity, and ultimately enhances performance. For those who choose to invest in keeping healthy animals healthy, feeding Diamond V makes a statement about another dimension of profit, where margins are measured by confidence in your future. To get a fresh perspective, visit diamondv.com, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. I want to take a step back here. You talk about two terms there, lactose intolerance, versus lactose maldigester. Are those, how are those the same or different? Right. Yeah, so the generic term that, the, that everyone uses is lactose intolerance. But in fact, in a literal sense, lactose intolerance means I have symptoms from lactose, right? So if you, if you literally translate lactose intolerance, it's symptoms from lactose. Someone who has a low level of intestinal lactase may or may not have symptoms from lactose, depending on the dose of lactose, how much do they drink? You know, you talked about eating a huge slab of ice cream. What if you had one small scoop of ice cream? It's a very different lactose load. And so a very different outcome, maybe. Okay. So dose is important. Intestinal transit turns out to be important. Uh, if you eat lactose or have a glass of milk with a meal, your symptoms are likely to be threefold less. You're three times less likely to have symptoms actually because the transit through your stomach is quite a bit slower because you have other food there. 
And then finally, an, another fact, well, actually, there's a couple other factors, but another one that's important is your colon microbiome, your adaptation. If you're used to consuming dairy foods, I'm a maldigester. Okay, I'm one of those 25% of humans. I'm Italian American, Italian descent. I mean, how do you really, how do you, how would somebody know that? that uh, let, me to, let me finish the story and then I'll get to that. Um, so, but I eat dairy foods routinely. I have milk on my oatmeal in the morning. I'll have uh, dairy foods throughout the day or at evening. And I would argue that my microbiome is very well adapted. We have actually done blinded clinical trials adapting people's microbiomes and can make them extremely tolerant to lactose by feeding them lactose regularly with their meals. So the way you measure it is actually very, very interesting. Um, when we ferment carbohydrates in our colon, and lactose is a disaccharide, a carbohydrate, we produce gases. And one of the gases we produce is hydrogen. The only source of hydrogen in the human body is the microbiome. So we can actually give people a glass of milk and measure their breath hydrogen and determine if they're a maldigester or a digester. Because the hydrogen diffuses from the colon through the body and we breathe it out. This is a clinical uh, diagnosis that was, or diagnostic test that was developed in the 1960s. And it's been used extensively. I mean, we're talking hundreds, if not thousands of times. And it's very reliable. It's very non-invasive. It's very easy to do. There are other ways to test it as well. You can do genetic testing. Um, there's a blood glucose uh, analysis that can be done, but they're far more complicated. The easiest thing is to have a little hydrogen analyzer. It's a little gas chromatograph and take a breath sample. And if your stomach, if you're fasted, so the only thing that you're eating is milk or dairy food, you get almost a direct correlation, almost a quantitative correlation between the amount of maldigestion and the amount of hydrogen produced. So, you know, I mean, I, I was probably guilty of this early on in my, in my career as well in terms of talking about lactose intolerance, but you, you wrote a couple of papers about real versus perceived lactose intolerance. I mean, how, how big of an issue is this in terms of, you know, I know quite a few people that say that they're lactose intolerant, but are they just maldigesters? Like what, what percentages are we talking about here? Well, you know, the, the GI tract is connected to the brain very, very efficiently. The, the sympathetic nervous system is very strong in, in, in its reaction. And there are people who think they're lactose intolerant, yet when you blind them and give them milk, they behave just like any other maldigester. In fact, one time years ago in Minneapolis, before I came to Purdue, I was at the University of Minnesota, we advertised for people who claim to be severely lactose intolerant, people who, I think we asked them, can you put cream in your coffee? And they would say, no, it would make me sick. And we then double blinded them and tested them and they behaved just like any other maldigester. They didn't know if they had small amounts of lactose, but they knew if they had larger amounts. So yeah, perception is reality. We also have, uh, more recently at Purdue, maybe 15 years ago, we had a large grant to study young girls trying to develop a curriculum to increase dairy foods in their diet so they would 
have higher bone densities. And we measured their bone densities at the beginning of the study. And then we correlated those bone densities to their belief about their lactose intolerance and to their actual lactose maldigestion. So we correlated it to their biology and to their, their beliefs, their psychology. Guess which one was correlated to their milk intake and their bone density? Their psychology, not their biology. Young girls who believed they were lactose intolerant and avoided milk actually had lower bone densities at age of 10 or 11 than girls who were really lactose intolerant but drank milk on a regular basis. I mean, I see how that's a problem early on in life. I mean, have there been studies looking at through adulthood and, and really a whole life where you have that, that belief and what are the negative or consequences? You know, it's, it's really hard to do a single study that goes from early childhood to, to age to the elderly. But what we do know is that children who avoid milk have lower bone densities. We know that bone density is related to osteoporosis development in later life. And we know that osteoporosis in later life is related to fractures and morbidity and mortality. So you can draw a series of conclusions from X to Y to Z and say that by avoiding dairy foods and having low bone density, you can end up with a higher risk for osteoporosis and the morbidity and mortality that it causes. But doing a single blinded study through the life is impossible. Impossible. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of gender, though, this is this sounds to be a bigger concern for females over males, or, or should males also be sort of... Well, women have a higher incidence of osteoporosis, but men also can have osteoporosis. And there's, there's genetic variation. It turns out African-Americans have a lower incidence of osteoporosis, which is interesting. But then they have a higher incidence of uh, hypertension, which is also related to calcium intake. So, so you just said the I re repeat what you just said about osteoporosis being lower in the African population. In the African American population, I'm not sure we have much data from Africa, but we have data from African Americans. I guess one one argument would be that if there are people that are lactose intolerant that are in regions of the world that are not consuming as much dairy as compared to other regions yet their osteoporosis risk is maybe low. Is, is that a direct, you know, sort of correlative? Why do people choose dairy foods? Well, they taste good. Mm -hmm. They're a very nutrient-dense package. It's not just calcium. It's protein, phosphorus, riboflavin, et cetera. Um, you know, why are the Chinese building a huge dairy industry? because they want dairy foods in their diet because of the, the quality and the flavor and the taste. Um, can we survive without dairy foods? Yeah, probably. You know, there, there's also an exercise relationship here. You know, it, it's not enough to get enough calcium. You also have to exercise and exercise adds to your bone density. So, you know, maybe, maybe somebody who eats a little less calcium, but lives in a, in an environment where they get more exercise actually might have denser bones than someone who, eats more calcium, but is sedentary. So, so it's not a simple one, one issue. It's, a, it's an interaction of issues. And it may be related also to other aspects of the diet, other components. Uh, it may be that the Western diet, the diet that Europeans and Americans eat, because of its nature, might require a higher calcium level for balance. That's been suggested. So are there 
In terms of milk and dairy foods, are there some foods that are more of a concern with regards to lactose intolerance or mal and maldigestion? Or yes, yeah. so the very first study we ever did was with yogurt. We published it in January of 1984 in the New England Journal of Medicine. We were shocked at what we found. What we found was that, and, and there were two or three researchers out there who had suggested this in animal models and had the idea, but we were, the, we were lucky enough to be the first to get the study done and published. Yogurt contains its own lactase. The yogurt bacteria have a very high level of lactase activity, which is active in the small intestine. So eating yogurt is like eating a lactate pill with your milk. And it's very well digested. It causes very few symptoms. Almost all maldigesters when they eat yogurt won't have symptoms from it. It's digested actually three or four times better than milk would be in terms of the lactose because of the lactic acid bacteria lactase activity. So I spent several years trying to build a super yogurt we actually did some genetic engineering to make yogurt cultures with really high lactase activities. Turns out all yogurts work. Going to make us famous, but, you know, it, it didn't. <laughs> so people with perceived lactose intolerance are still avoiding yogurt, though. Well, yeah. And so the perception that dairy foods make me sick um, really is, is a, a concern because when you blind people, oftentimes that's not the case. Now, there is, a, there is another complex issue that we don't fully understand, and we've only been studying it a few years, and that's the, the proteins in milk, particularly the beta casein in milk. There, is, there are five or six studies, including our, our laboratory in the United States, showing that the A1 beta casein containing milk causes more stomach distension or intestinal distension than does the A2 beta casein. And these are blinded, randomized trials, and it's, it's pretty convincing, it's pretty consistent. And we just actually did a study where we looked at stomach emptying from milk containing A1 beta casein versus A2 beta casein. And the milk containing the A1 beta casein went through the stomach much more rapidly. It left into the intestine, which would suggest that less of the lactose would have a chance to get digested. So it might sit in the colon longer and sitting in the colon longer is what could make your stomach distension. You would feel that your intestinal distension. And the hypothesis is that there's a, in the A1 beta casein, there was a single nucleotide polymorphism, a single change in the DNA. And it results in a casomorphine compound. And this casomorphine compound has biological function. In animal studies, uh, in some human studies, it, it influences different aspects of your, your GI tract. Now, what we don't know is why do some people seem to be affected and not others? Um, how big is it? For whom? Uh, we're actually taking the data we have and tearing it apart again and looking at individuals to see if we can start to identify, you know, because the effect is, is there and it's significant but it's bigger in some people and smaller in others. I'll give you an anecdote. I had a call from a person who grew up in Eastern Europe on old world milk, which is A2 milk, milk with only the A2 beta casein. The new world milk, the more modern cows, the Holstein is where you get the A1. And this person came from the, um, Eastern Europe to the US and 
said, you know, I just can't drink the milk here. It makes me sick. And I listened to him and I listened to him as I do to many of the folks. And I said, well, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a physician. I'm a PhD. Have you tried dose? Have you tried transit? Have you tried adaptation? All the other things we just talked about earlier. And then I said, have you tried A2? You know, you grew up on A2. A week later, he called me back and said, it works. A2 is wonderful. I can drink all I want. I can't drink A1. Why for him is that an issue? But for me, it's not because I grew up in California on, you know, mixed modern milk. So there's there's some really interesting genetics and maybe some epigenetics around this this A1, A2 story that we don't fully understand. And that that's another piece of this. Um, the company that and I should total disclosure, the A2 milk company sponsors my research. So they send me money to do research. But, you know, we do the studies independent of them. They're double blinded. They're randomized. They're published. Um, and there's a half a dozen studies out there that suggest this is an issue for some people. Um, they, they think the A2 or the A1 somehow influences the lactase expression. And we're actually going to do some studies to look at that. I'm pretty sure it influences stomach transit because I've got MRI data from, from subjects, blinded subjects feeding them A1 milk versus A2 milk with dramatic differences in stomach emptying that can't be explained by composition or anything else. Um, and we're in the middle of sending that off. To, it, we've, we've put it, in, we had it at the American Society for Nutrition meetings and we're sending it off to a, a research journal uh, next month probably. So you, you talk about lactose and now the milk proteins, but, but some might bring up milk fat or dairy fat and dairy foods um, is that a potential concern here that could be an underlying cause for some of the gi problems uh there's not much data that that fat influences symptoms except and then there's some conflicting data there's a there's a paper in the literature that says that milk fat does not milk fat does not influence lactose intolerance we did a study where we compared skim milk, milk with fat in it, other foods, and found the more you could add calories into the stomach, higher fat content adds more calories, the slower the transit, the better the digestion. So I think the data is a little confounding, um, and it hasn't been really well studied. There's only two or three papers. One's ours. There's just one other paper. Um, there's an old paper that, that shows the difference, skim milk versus whole milk. And our paper does so. You know, it's 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 not real well studied. I mean, you reference a couple of ways to manage um, sort of maldigestion. I mean, maybe expand on that a little bit further. And what are some uh, sort of digestive aids to sort of to to help to help manage this? Well, you know, I think the first thing is dose. You really have to think about dose. Um, I can tell you a personal story about how I gave myself lactose intolerance that explains dose. I was in Washington at a DC at a, of all things, a calcium conference. And my advisor's wife, who was also a research scientist, was working in Washington. So we had lunch and we talked all the way through lunch and I didn't eat. About 1.30 or two, I'm really hungry. And they take a coffee break. So I go downstairs and I get a big frozen yogurt. Well, frozen yogurt, back then wasn't really frozen yogurt. It was ice milk with very little yogurt bacteria in it. And like you with the chocolate ice cream, you explained 
30 minutes later, I'm in the bathroom with huge flatulence. Just, just, you know, and I should know better, right? Empty stomach, big dose of lactose. Yeah. So, so there's the, the first lesson is dose and with a food, you know, a glass of milk with a meal, milk on your cereal, rarely are going to cause anyone's symptoms. Um, so that's the first issue. The second is, you know, there's a lot of dairy foods that don't have much lactose in them. Hard cheeses don't have much lactose at all. Anything where you take the whey away from the curds, the lactose is water soluble. It's in the whey. So wherever you have curds only, you're going to have very low lactose. So hard cheeses are a good choice. That's a dose issue as well. Um, with a meal, yogurts are a great choice because of the lactase in the yogurts. Ice creams are usually tolerated a bit better than ice milks because they have more fat and less lactose, uh, more calories. I remember in grad school, I had to, um, I, I was at the University of Illinois and I, and I did this uh, six week or an eight week study and I, I wasn't allowed to consume any lactose. I, I don't remember the results or the outcomes of the study, but I used to drink a lot of lactate. I mean, is that still a thing? I don't even know. I'm yes, so that's still a strategy. You can, in the grocery stores, find all kinds of lactose-free milks, and they work. Um, lately, what you're finding are a lot of plant-based milks. Some of us don't want to call them milks. We want to call them plant-based beverages. That's an interesting debate we could have. Are they milks or are they beverages? I guess if, if you, you look at the biological definition, they're beverages. If you look at the, the sort of the, the consumer definition, you know, we have their, their milks. So, well, it's, inter it's interesting that you acknowledge that because <laughs> I would be very much very adamant to call them beverages. But <laughs> I can well, see but, you know, from a consumer perspective, you know, you have cow's milk, you have oat milk, you have soy milk, you have. Um, are there are, are there components to those? Let's say these plant based alternatives. Are there are there are there sort of concerns about those foods and how they might alter sort of the GI function and health? Well, the, the, the problem, the fundamental problem with plant-based beverages from a nutritionist perspective is the variability in their nutrient content. Milk is a high nutrient, nutrient dense food. So if you drink a glass of milk, you're getting a lot of nutrition. If you choose a plant-based milk, you could get one that's very high in nutrition, or you could get one that's very low in nutrition. They range from very high sugar, very low nutrient to very high nutrient. And you might also argue that the ones that taste the best are the ones that are the least nutritious because they have the most sugar and fat and so forth. So the consumer really has to make a choice when it comes to plant-based milks. Do they want nutrition or do they want flavor? Or can you have both? And of course the industry is working hard to have both. Um, you can't you can't fault them for that and and you know consumers i think vary in their their ability to, to discern what they're buying uh but clearly there's a lot of variation in nutrient composition now they all have calcium in them but they have very different levels of protein very different levels of b vitamins very different levels of sugar which is you know something we're trying to avoid too much of so i think that's what makes the plant-based market a bit more challenging for the consumer. You know, so something I'm going to have them put back into the into the episode a little bit earlier on. But what are some other 
Are there other gut disorders that could explain some of the GI disturbances that are often connected with lactose intolerance, but are not? So what, what you see is whenever there's a dysfunction of the GI tract, you know, whether it's diarrhea or uh, flatulence, irritable bowel, is probably going to be related. The person will probably be lactose intolerant. But they'll also be intolerant to other things as well. Um, the lactase enzyme is an interesting enzyme. The, the human mammalian lactase enzyme. It, like the sucrase isomaltase enzyme, it digests uh, sucrose. These enzymes don't sit inside the cell. They sit on the outside of the cell on a carbohydrate moiety. It's like a popsicle stuck in your cell with the popsicle part, the enzyme that cleaves the disaccharide, then the monosaccharides get absorbed. And anything that comes across and disrupts that popsicle from sticking in that cell will exacerbate lactose intolerance. And so alcoholics are often lactose intolerant. Uh, people who have other GI dys dysfunctions are often lactose intolerant. Uh, undernutrition, malnutrition, you know, where we don't, where there are starvation issues, people are lactose intolerant. And IBS has a, you know, IBS folks are often lactose intolerant. So that enzyme is very sensitive and the GI microflora apparently are very sensitive as well. You can manipulate them. So between the, the microbiome and the way this enzyme is sensitive, you get lots of what are called secondary lactose intolerance issues. Um, oftentimes people who are perfectly fine with dairy foods will have the flu or COVID or go overseas and get traveler's diarrhea and upset their GI tract and now they're lactose intolerant. And they have to re-accumulate their, their flora, their microbiome that can digest lactose. And that may or may not happen. We don't know enough about that. We really could study that as an interesting, but we know we can adapt them. I can adapt them in 10 days. Wow, that's how fast it takes. Um, it might take longer, but if you, if you push it really hard with lactose and water in during meals, you can do it in 10 days with healthy people. So, you know, in terms of your lactose research and, and where you're going and whatever you're willing to share, I'm sort of interested where, where's the future of this field lie? I would really like to figure out why some people are sensitive to this A1 protein and some are not. I'd also like to figure out a little more about the microbiome and how we can adapt it. Uh, we're doing a bifida study right now with the microbiome, seeing if we can just feed the bifidus and have it. It's a bifidus that loves galactolicosaccharide, so it loves lactose. So we're looking for strategies that are, you know, related to the microbiome, related to stomach emptying, those kinds of issues. I think more importantly, though, from a consumer perspective, is you know, dairy's gotten a really bad name. Um, and, and the competition out there has been remarkable. You know, in the 50s and 60s, milk consumption went down because people were drinking coffee. In the 70s and 80s, it went down because people were drinking soft drinks. In the last 20 years, it's gone down because people are drinking plant-based beverages. So the dairy industry is really taking it on the chin in terms of uh, dairy consumption of fluid milk. Now, the the, uh, the, comp the opposite of that is cheese consumption has gone up dramatically. 
cheese is a very convenient food, right? You know, you buy it a little, little plastic things, you can throw it in a lunch pail. It's, it's convenience has become a, a really important aspect of the food industry. And if you look at the, the growth market, a lot of it's convenience. I, 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 tomorrow I'm giving a international dairy federation talk about yogurt. And I took some pictures of the yogurt aisle in my grocery store over the weekend. It's about 80 feet long. Yogurt aisle is 80 feet long. I mean, if you go back 30 years and look at the yogurt aisle, it might've been 10 feet long. Yogurts are convenient, right? You get a little, little package, throw it in your lunch bag. You're good. Well, Dr. Dennis Saviano, thank you for joining me today on the Dairy Podcast Show. Your topic and, and, and interest focused on lactose intolerance was very insightful. Uh, I'm sure people can reach out to you. Is there any way they could um, sort of email you or contact you? What would be the best approach? Saviano at Purdue.edu. All right, perfect. I've heard you talk before. It's always great to have a chance to be able to listen to your wisdom and, and experience. And, and thank you again for joining us today on the Dairy Podcast Show. It's my pleasure. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye.